This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Trigger warning. This podcast involves discussions of child sexual abuse and pedophilia. Listener discretion is advised. Vladimir Nabokov once said this. For me, a work of fiction exists only insofar as it affords me what I shall bluntly call aesthetic bliss, that is, a sense of being somehow, somewhere, connected with other states of being where art, curiosity, tenderness, kindness, ecstasy, is the norm. There are not many such books. And aesthetic bliss means different things to different people. Let me tell you a tale of two different yet similar stories from British tabloid newspaper, The Daily Mail. The first is a 2010 story about a perfume called Oh Lola by Marc Jacobs. Top notes are raspberry, pear, and strawberry. Middle notes are peony, magnolia, and cyclamen. Base notes are vanilla, sandalwood, and tonka bean. Their spokesperson was a 17-year-old Dakota Fanning, posing in a sheer white dress, holding a plastic rose near her crotch. Here's how the Daily Mail described this photo shoot in 2010. The background is similarly juvenile, its monotone pastel pink compounding the innocence of the composition. But when a large bottle of the scent featuring its signature rose top has been placed provocatively in between the young starlet's legs, the teenager clutches it as she tilts back lasciviously and stares intently into the camera. New Yorker Jacobs admits that his intention was to portray the young woman as a reboot of the tragic character in Vladimir Nabokov's 1955 novel Lolita, which tells the story of a young girl's sexual relationship with a much older man who becomes her stepfather. Thank you, Daily Mail. That is certainly one way to describe that book. Maybe you remember this ad. I had a photo from it hanging in my room in high school. Maybe you don't, but you remember a similar image in advertising throughout the years. This ad was eventually banned by Britain's Advertising Standards Authority for sexualizing a child. Then, Dakota Fanning's younger sister Elle starred in another Lolita-themed fragrance commercial for a French scent called Lolita Lempica in 2012 at age 14. 
And again, the criticism was swift. The ad is a three-minute video that features Elle Fanning as a forest nymph who we see in a series of shots where she's chewing on her thumbnail, looking at the camera, and then she falls in love with a deer. Right. Or maybe you remember an Aldo campaign from the early 2010s with a pale teenager in heart-shaped sunglasses licking a popsicle in an attempt to sell you shoes. Maybe you're a little older than I am and you remember the famously controversial perfume scent Love's Baby Soft from 1974, which ran with images of young white girls clutching teddy bears wearing pink lipstick with the tagline, because innocence is sexier than you think. If you've never seen those ads before, it's worth a Google. They will ruin your life. Or maybe you remember the Lolita-inspired imagery that's appeared in advertising or pop music or movies over the last 65 plus years. This hyper-feminine, young, sexualized image has been used to move product before Nabokov's novel and certainly after it. In these contexts, Lolita is completely divorced from a novel that is narrated by a child sex abuser. Its implications are to entice, to sell, to convince the viewer that the underage are consenting. And this is the story of advertising before Lolita was published and certainly after it was published in 1955. But the misinterpretations surrounding Vladimir Nabokov's character Dolores Hayes has ingratiated itself seamlessly into advertising culture over and over and over. Let's give the Daily Mail another shot. Here's a story from 2013 trying to educate her? Bradley Cooper, 38, reads Lolita to Suki Waterhouse, 21, as she sprawls across him in Parisian Park. Attached to this article are a number of paparazzi photos of the actress and model Suki Waterhouse reclining across Bradley Cooper and reading a copy of Lolita, a book whose front cover blurb from writer Martin Amis reads, comedy, subversive yet divine. In one shot, he lays in her lap, her hair is pulled up and she's wearing very youthful overalls, and he reads to her. And in another, he points at the back cover of the book and talks to her. Now, to be clear, they're both adults at this time, and their relationship lasts for around two years, ending in 2015. But even the tone of how this article is written sums up so much of the dissonance that surrounds this book and its legacy. So I wanted to share some of it here. Lolita was published in 1955 by a French pornographic press and deemed so obscene it was banned in countries including England, South Africa, and Argentina. But despite its scandalous content, today Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita is a fixture of many literature syllabuses and was dubbed one of the Time magazine's 100 best 20th century English language novels. So perhaps that explains why Bradley Cooper wanted to share the classic with his much younger girlfriend, Suki Waterhouse, 21. The 38-year-old was seen reading from a well-thumbed copy of the book as he reclined in a Parisian park Suki sprawled across him. She listened intently as he read, although at times looked bemused as Bradley brought certain passages to her attention. After a while, the British-born star decided to sit on Bradley's lap and then between his legs as he continued to read. Okay, we're going to uh, skip ahead a little bit in the article. It continues, quote, Wanting to capture their romantic moment in France, the Silver Linings actor took out his mobile phone to take a quick snap. Lifting up his sunglasses, he smiled at the camera while Suki put her own sunglasses down and tied her hair up as she pulled her best model pose for the picture. 
Their 17-year age gap comes as a surprise after Bradley previously declared that he was too old to date his Silver Linings Playbook co-star Jennifer Lawrence, who at 22 was a year older than Suki. He said earlier this year regarding Jennifer, If it didn't happen by now, it's never gonna happen. I could literally be her father! Speaking about his love life, he once said, I look for a girl that is fun, a free spirit. I'm a romantic, yeah, so she would need to put up with a little, you know, goggle-eyed. I can be soppy. Thank you, Daily Mail. Journalism is alive and well. Now, seriously, Cooper said in interviews in the past that Lolita is one of his favorite books, and it just makes you ask, on what grounds? Some suggested at the time that Cooper was poking fun at the media coverage that the age gap in his and Waterhouse's relationship had produced, but given the seriousness with which he said an actor almost two years older than Suki Waterhouse was too young for him, that's kind of a tough game of 4D chess for me to put together. And yet, there are still comments on this Daily Mail piece that talk down to Suki Waterhouse. One of the comments at the time reads, quote, It doesn't look right to me. She looks about 13, and he can do better than that, unquote. So, the Lolita aesthetic is everywhere. I mean, this Bradley Cooper, Suki Waterhouse story is from the past eight years and uses Lolita as this wink and nod signifier as if to say, yeah, we know what this looks like. But what it looks like is much more aligned with the advertising aesthetic of Lolita than the events of the actual book. I mean, Nabokov's book is not a fun read in the park by any stretch of the imagination. I shudder to think what their takeaway from the actual book that day in Paris was. What a sentence. Today, we're going to look at a slice of Dolores Hayes' life and legacy on the cover of the book chronicling her abuse in advertising and in popular music. This is Lolita Podcast. Welcome back, everyone. This is Lolita Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Loftus. And today we're going to be looking at some of the aesthetics of how Dolores has been presented to us outside of direct adaptations. There's a ton of conflicting terms to describe the aesthetic I'm touching on here. So I'm going to use the nymphet aesthetic or nymphet culture to make things consistent. These terms are taken from online communities revolving around Dolores Hayes themselves and are defined as such by the Aesthetics Wiki. Quote, Nymphet is an aesthetic based on a novel written by Vladimir Nabokov, Lolita, published in 1955 and its movie adaptations from 1962 and 1997. Nymphet is a young girl who is attractive and sexually mature, but still has childlike behavior and innocence, unquote. Now there's a lot to unpack in that definition alone, and we will do so in this episode. So like everything with Lolita, there is a wide range of things at play here. You're going to be hearing about some of the most egregious and harmful over-sexualizations of Dolores Hayes of all time. But at the top of this episode, I wanted to make a quick note. Uh, I unfortunately do not have the capacity to address every single visual influence that Lolita by Nabokov has had. I know in particular, there is a fairly large discussion about how Lolita has influenced a lot of popular anime and manga, but it quickly became 
a topic that was too large for me to possibly cover. So I'm going to link to some resources I used below if that's a history you're interested in exploring. I want to untangle a couple of commonly conflated terms when it comes to the Lolita aesthetic culture, because it does get pretty confusing. So the three terms I, I want to untangle here are Lolita fashion, Lollicon, and the Lolita or Nymphette aesthetic. Okay, we're getting in the weeds here. First, there is Lolita fashion. This is a Japanese fashion movement that began in the late 70s that has nothing to do with the Nabokov book. Although it is honestly really hard to figure out why it's called Lolita fashion, I could not find a straight answer on that. But the community in Lolita fashion pretty unanimously agrees that it is a fashion movement unto itself. So it's confusing, but Lolita fashion, which consists of wide-skirted dresses with lace and bows, are not related to Lolita by Nabokov, so we're not going to be discussing it in the episode. Second, there is the term lolicon, a term that pops up very often around anime and manga. This does have to do with Lolita by Nabokov, and borrows Dolores Hayes' nickname from Humbert to describe the following phenomenon, according to the 2020 paper Lolicon and its Effects on Japanese Society, written by Jamie Arpan, Natalie Padilla, and Elizabeth Chandler. Lolicon is, quote, a Japanese portmanteau of the phrase Lolita complex, in Japan, the term describes an attraction to underage girls or an individual with such an attraction." Unquote. And a history of Lolicon could be an episode all its own, but all that to say, the term is connected to Nabokov's Lolita. Finally, the concern of this episode is the Lolita aesthetic. And when I say that, I mean the visual culture surrounding Lolita that is primarily pulled from the movie adaptations by Stanley Kubrick and Adrian Lyne, as well as a lot of 90s pop culture. I know pulling apart these three terms is kind of in the weeds. I'll let TikTok user Nerdy Mixed Pan break this down for you. Some people were confused by what I meant when I said lolly in my last video, so let me explain. There are three different things that can be associated with the shortened version lolly. There is Lolita fashion, which has nothing to do with anything I was discussing. There's lolly con, which is what I was discussing. Then there is Lolita the book, which is about a pedophile sexually assaulting a 12-year-old and kidnapping her, which the term lolly con came from. So that should tell you what lolly con is. So yeah, hopefully that cleared up any confusion. Lolita fashion has nothing to do with the Lolita book, nor with Lolicon. Although people try to synonymize all three, but that's incorrect. Lolita fashion, Lolicon, Lolita aesthetics. All different things. The way I'm using the word aesthetic here is as defined by the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which says, aesthetic is to designate, among other things, a kind of object, a kind of judgment, a kind of attitude, a kind of experience, and a kind of value. Or, as concisely summarized by American philosopher Ariana Grande, it's a mood, it's a vibe, it's a look, it's a match. So let's start at the beginning of Lolita marketing, the cover of the book itself. Now, if you've ever owned a popular printing of Lolita, you can probably guess what the most obvious problem is here. It's far more likely that you will find a young adult woman licking a lollipop on the cover than an attempt to depict Nabokov's abused protagonist. 
There's disembodied legs, lingerie, and actual child pornography. Sometimes there's illustrations of Dolores and Humbert that make them not just seem consenting, but that Dolores is much older than the 12-year-old in the book. But the problems go even deeper than inaccurate representation on the cover, and it goes all the way back to Nabokov's wishes back when the book was first published. Back when he was negotiating his American cover for Lolita in 1958, here's what he suggested for a cover. I have just received the five designs, and I quite agree with you that none of them is satisfactory. I want pure colors, melting clouds, accurately drawn details, a sunburst above a receding road with the light reflected in furrows and ruts after rain, and no girls. If we cannot find that kind of artistic and virile painting, let us settle for an immaculate white jacket with Lolita in bold black lettering. So this was written to his publisher, Walter Minton, and Minton would respect this. The book would eventually be published with just black text on a white book. Nabokov was notorious for giving his unfiltered opinion on covers and being very precise in his demands. He even ended up letting his son Dimitri illustrate a few just to avoid the assumptions and misfires of other illustrators of the day. Ever a judgy author king, he eviscerated attempts that seemed to age Dolores Hayes up and used some questionable language to say so. He refers to a 1959 Swedish cover of Lolita as a horrible young whore. Yikes. And here's what Nabokov had to say about a Turkish edition of Lolita that depicted a very aged up girl embracing Humbert Humbert, also in 1959. I am not sure who is older. As Lolita became more and more popular, it became impossible for the author to oversee every cover, and he eventually became a little resigned to the fact that publishers are always, always, always going to push to have a girl or woman on the cover, regardless of whether it has anything to do with Dolores Hayes. In a 1963 documentary, Nabokov pulls a copy of Lolita off the shelf from his personal library with a girl on the cover, and he says this. This is beautiful, that's a Dutch edition. Isn't it nice? Beautifully done. From the point of view of an artistic version, I think it's absolutely charming Dutch. That's his real voice, oh my god. Uh, and by the end of Nabokov's life, he had no choice but to be resigned to the injustice that culture had done to Dolores Hayes. But he was salty about it until the very end, saying this in a letter to a colleague the year before his death. The pictures by Ovenden of that young sea cow posing as my Lolita are, of course, preposterous. Yet there is nothing much I can do about it. Recently, I was shown an advert in an American rag offering a life-size Lolita doll with French and Greek apertures. Salty indeed. So back when he was doing the first American edition in 1958, Nabokov's wish for text in lieu of a girl was done by Minton out of respect for Nabokov's wishes. But as editions continued throughout the remainder of Nabokov's life and after his death in 1977, the concern became more, well, how are we going to sell this book? I've owned a few of these editions over the years, and none of them would have passed the Nabokov snuff test. My first copy was the 50th anniversary edition, which came out in 2005. It was designed by the renowned book cover artist John Gall, who teaches book design in colleges and said he would never assign Lolita to his graphic design students. 
You might have seen it before. It consists of a tight shot of a young white woman's bisected pink lips, the text Lolita in cursive, and the name of the author. This is the one I had taken from me by a gym teacher in seventh grade. And as critic Ellen Pfeiffer, author of Nabokov in the Novel, put in an essay, it looks kind of like this. The close-up of a woman's enticing mouth, her full lips hinting at another nether set of labia. Okay, uh, so John Gall is definitely breaking Nabokov's rules here. There is a girl on the cover. It suggests eroticism. It's softly lit, certainly more of a reflection of Lolita than Dolores. Though not the worst offender by a long shot, this cover definitely frames Dolores as a willing participant. But Gall defended his choices in 2013. I completely agree with Nabokov on what I think is his main point no little girls. On the other hand, his description of what he would like reads beautifully, but would be a complete yawner of a cover. It is so nonspecific that it could be the cover of almost any novel ever written. To this day, people remain pretty split on this cover. And honestly, from the vantage point of 2021, when this episode is being released, I don't think it really holds up very well, and I've seen a number of people in the Lolita podcast discord lamenting the lack of covers that are widely available for not looking so Vaseline lens romantic. A cover that isn't so romantic, it's just kind of ugly, is the second copy of Lolita I ever owned, this one from when I was in college. It's the annotated Lolita, with annotations from Nabokov's former student, Alfred Appel. Published in 1991, it has a very 90s triangle pattern with some text, not the sunsets that Nabokov describes, but Gall says that these designs don't endure for a reason. He says this. There are two directions for this cover. Either you take the title head-on and go with some representation of Lolita, or you don't. But be careful. The land of metaphor is filled with furrows and ruts and roads going off in the distance. Okay, I, I still think we can do better than adult lips on the cover, but I will grant him that last part. There's a lot of very specific ways to get a cover of Lolita wrong. This may come as a surprise, but the covers of Lolita have been much discussed over the years. In fact, they were the subject of an entire book, which, by the way, has a green cover and the text of the No Girls Nabokov quote in the background. This book is called Lolita, the story of a cover girl, and it was published in 2013, edited by John Bertram and Yuri Loving. It contains a lot of really fascinating insight, not just into book design, but around what consumers expect in a cover of Lolita and, like most media inspired by Nabokov's book, tend to be reflective of the time and place that they're released into. And this extends beyond the influence of the movie adaptations, although, boy were those influential. Even Vera Nabokov was photographed in heart-shaped sunglasses at one point. The attempts at the perfect cover tend to fall into a few distinct categories, according to a study of past covers of Lolita done in 2013 by Dieter E. Zimmer. Here's the breakdown of what appears on 210 covers of Lolita, ranging from 40 countries from 1955 to 2013. 116 of them have some kind of depiction of the character Lolita, and maybe arguably in a few cases, Dolores. 69 are described as anatomic. Yes, 69. Please don't tweet at me for a week about this. I fucking know. 69. The word anatomic is used by Zimmer to mean cropped images of bodies instead of full figures. 
And coming in last place is simple text representations of the title Lolita, with only 49 covers. My most recent copy of Lolita was passed along to me by my friend Alex, who I think picked it up at a yard sale while I was working on these series. It was published in 1973 in London, it appears, and it features a blonde model in her 20s, I'm guessing, wearing a white pageboy hat, licking an orange popsicle seductively. Uh, and I guess this would fall into the Lolita imagery category of this study, one of those 116. And I regret to report, while a terrible cover, it's not even one of the worst. I just noticed there's an inscription in this um, on the front. Okay, so Alex paid $5 for this, and it says this. This book is the property of... Oh, this is boring. This is, book is the property of Lewis H. Well, not anymore. Let's move on. So, okay, 116 out of 210 Lolita covers feature a lone image of Lolita. 22 of them feature Lolita and Humbert. A lot of these are movie tie-ins from the 1997 movie starring Jeremy Irons and Dominique Swain. And only nine feature Humbert Humbert alone. And in case you were assuming the worst, yes, eight of these depict Lolita wearing underwear and 17 depict her as nude. So Nabokov was right to be defensive and pissed off about this. But there's more to it than cover designers with creepy ideas. These designers were often very limited by what the marketing department wanted, often oversimplification or oversexualization to reach the widest audience possible. Not to mention that the book designing gig doesn't always pay well enough to give time for designers to read the entire book that they're illustrating the cover of. We can make the offhand assumption that John Gall personally thought that the bisected lips cover was the best possible representation of a Lolita book cover in 2005, but think again, here's what he says. For my very first attempt at designing a cover for Lolita, I attempted a typographic solution. After this was shot down, I made the decision to see if there was a way to reinterpret the typography. So John Gall did try to do closer to what Nabokov wanted, but wasn't allowed to by the publisher. Gall mentions that no matter what's on the cover, Lolita will reliably sell about 50,000 copies a year, and that seems to be true. And if that figure is so relatively steady, why aren't publishers comfortable with letting cover artists go their own way? Another element that modern readers and Jamie's get frustrated with as much as or more often than the actual pictorial depictions of Lolita are the press quotes chosen for the covers of the book, which is even further out of the control of a covers illustrator. Consider the quote we see most often on the cover of Lolita from a Vanity Fair writer called Gregor von Rizzori, who declares Lolita, quote, the only convincing love story of the century, unquote. Of all the many deeply offensive cover interpretations over the years, the inclusion of this quote, I think, does the greatest demonstrable harm in sending out all the wrong information about what the book is actually about. And maybe it sounds weird to get into the weeds on the cover of a book, but people famously judge books by them. Covers are art in many cases, but their primary function is marketing, communicating what the publisher feels is gonna make someone buy Lolita over some YouTuber's poetry book. They communicate era and values in much the same way that movie and musical adaptations of Lolita, however terrible, 
communicate the time and place they're being released in. Dieter Zimmer writes an essay in Lolita, the story of the cover girl, about the history of Lolita covers in Russia and what they say about Russian culture, or culture in the USSR, depending on what year you're talking about, and analyzes what they said about where public opinion was in the Russia of the 80s and 90s. Unlike in the US, the 1997 Jeremy Irons starring Adrian Lyne movie adaptation was a huge hit there. And there's a ton of romantically illustrated tie-in additions to the movie. In Russia, there's also a lot of use of classic erotic paintings, mostly unrelated to the text of Lolita. And there is one horrific cover with child pornography on the back cover from 1998, when Moscow was experiencing an influx of child sex trafficking. Cover design may seem benign, but it does tell us something about where and when it's being released into. I personally prefer typographical covers because with material this sensitive, in my mind, it's just too easy to get it wrong. More often than not, these covers are sexualizing the victim of child sex abuse. But there's examples that miss the point that also skew pretty silly. There's one of like the Venus de Milo for some reason. There's a cover that's a bad Photoshop of Nabokov reading a butterfly like it's a book. But there is one cover that is mentioned a lot as a favorite by other book cover artists throughout Lolita, the story of a cover girl that includes a representation of Lolita, or as they describe it, Dolores. This cover is by designer Megan Wilson, who is an icon in the book designer community as one of the most prolific women in the profession, and she's actually also done other Nabokov book designs. Her Lolita cover came out in 1997 from Vintage International and is a black and white photograph of a young girl's legs, not an adult's. The girl is wearing late 1940s schoolgirl shoes with her knees crossed. I will let Lolita story of a cover girl essayist Peter Mendelssohn describe his experience looking at this cover for the first time. When I first encountered this edition, I assumed our supposed Lolita's pose was flirtatious. She seems locked in some sort of stylized sexual demurral. However, as time passed and my reading of the text evolved, I began to factor in the dark, ominous lighting, and the gaze of the photographer became threatening. The pose of the subject, one of discomfiture, the knee crosses protectively. What seemed to me at first as come hither has evolved into, please don't. So far, for many prominent cover designers, Megan Wilson's work successfully communicates the nauseating feeling of reading the book itself. But like Mendelssohn mentioned, it's pretty open to interpretation, and taking in the image of a young girl's crossed legs at face value can lead to harm and misinterpretation. There's a number of international editions that came out after Megan Wilson's 1997 cover that are clearly playing copycat. Like hers, they are all black and white photos of a young girl's crossed legs wearing Mary Janes. But these ripoff covers from Croatia, Taiwan, Poland, and Paris pose the young girl in a way that is very frankly sexual and inviting, not anxious and somewhat ambiguous like Wilson's. That is to say, these other cover artists or other marketing departments saw a pair of legs on Wilson's cover and assumed that they were there to entice the reader. I will link these images in the description. The whole thing looks like a very depressing game of telephone. Nabokov frequently admitted that he was a creature 
culture of aesthetics. He was a synesthesiac, or a person who associated numbers and sounds with colors, who believed that reading a book should feel like witnessing a painting by the third or fourth time you read it. He could write in three languages, but said he, quote, thinks in images. Most tellingly, he says this. We think in images, not in words. And then, in the last interview he ever gave, Images are mute, yet, presently, the silent cinema begins to talk, and I recognize its language. The language of images. So, what I'm saying is I would give up my life savings to know what Nabokov thought of Lana Del Rey. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, 
covers have been, over the years, one of the most powerful communicators of public misinterpretations of Dolores Hayes. In many, she is sexualized, she looks older, she is inviting the reader to look at her. These images spoke louder than the text itself for many and trickled into popular music and onto the internet, particularly one artist who exists where these points meet. In 2012, Lolita culture began to migrate to a visually driven, almost entirely pictorial microblogging site. Oh my God, I haven't said the word microblogging out loud in at least eight years. A microblogging site called Tumblr in the early 2010s. Now, Nabokov, as he just told you, is the aesthetics guy. So I think that this would have honestly been his platform over Goodreads. Lolita-themed tumblers exploded, and then a musician named Lana Del Rey comes on the scene, and this escalates nymphette culture online in a completely unprecedented way. Fun little look at the production of this show. I cannot use any copyrighted music here, so I had a bunch of my friends read pop lyrics like their verse poetry. Ooh, elegant solution. Thank you so much. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that Lana Del Rey, at present, is the pop-cultural gatekeeper of Lolita musical imagery. But that's not to say that Lolita and Nabokov weren't commonly referred to in music before Lana got big. Lolita has been referenced in countless songs over the years, and many artists seem to get the point of the book, while many, uh, absolutely do not. There's this song called Lolita from pop duo The Veronicas from 2012. So illegal, no evil is seen with these eyes. I won't tell if you won't, and I will if you want. Nothing is sacred, don't care if it's wrong. Very forbidden, lovey. It's a no from me. This song was written by the two members of the band who are twins, as well as two other songwriters. One of the Veronicas, Jessica Origliasso, said the following about the Nabokov-inspired song. Quote, To us, Lolita is about power play. It's the power play between genders and age groups, as well as people's perception of taboo, boundaries, what is acceptable, and what a Lolita is. She's a badass, and she's on a mission. She wants to destroy something, either her own perception of what's right and wrong, or everyone else's. She wants to prove something to herself." Okay, then French singer Elise has a song called Moi Lolita that came out in 2000 when she was only 16 after she appeared on a TV talent show. The lyrics are written by French musician Mylene Farmer, and these lyrics are translated on Google. My name is Lolita, Lo or Lola. More of the same. My name is Lolita. When I dream of wolves, it's Lola who bleeds. When fork my tongue, I have there a giggle as crazy as a phenomenon. This song is accompanied by a baffling music video, especially if you don't speak French. Miley Cyrus references Lolita in her Can't Be Tamed album, which was released when she was 17 and first breaking out of that squeaky clean Disney image. In the song Permanent December, she sings... I met a boy in every city, no one kept me amused. But don't call me a Lolita, cause I don't let them through. Cause I'm saving all my loving for someone and it's you. This song was written in collaboration with Cyrus and two male producers. There's the 1987 Celine Dion song called Lolita parentheses Too Young to Love, which is written by two guys in their 40s. Celine Dion is 19 when the song comes out. 
but Celine loved this song and said she sang it to her manager and future husband, René Angelil, saying this at the time, quote, The first time I sang the words to Lolita, I was in front of René, and I sang it to arouse him, unquote. Celine and René would eventually be married for over 20 years, all the way up until his death, but they met when she was 12 years old and he was 38. Here are some of the lyrics she's talking about. You say I'm too young to live with a man. I tell you, I don't care, I don't care. And then the chorus, Lolita is not too young to love, is not too young to give. When desire devours her body down to her fingertips, never too young to love, never too young to give. American electronica singer-songwriter Emily Autumn sings about Lolita back in 06 in a way that I found to be completely unique and haunting. She sings from Dolores's perspective, saying this, I don't mind telling you my life was ended by your hand, the kind of murder where nobody dies, but I don't suppose you'd understand. If I am Lolita, then you are a criminal and you should be killed by an army of little girls. The law won't arrest you. The world won't detest you. You never did anything any man wouldn't do. This song is pretty badass. Then there's a lot of early Fiona Apple, who was a music industry darling from her debut and was also constantly compared to Lolita in her early career while she was still a teenager. And to be clear, not Dolores Hayes. Kristen Iverson, a writer at Nylon, summed up this era of Fiona Apple music in her piece, Men Explain Fiona Apple to Me, speaking particularly about when an 18-year-old Fiona sang songs about love and pain she wrote when she was even younger, most famously in the song Criminal. Iverson says this, quote, Criminal went viral before that term meant anything, and its blatantly seductive imagery of a hyper-attentuated apple lolling around a rec room with an anonymous group of men and women guaranteed that it would be a focal point for the kind of critics who love to apply the name Lolita to any young woman whose sexuality threatens them. More than that, though, employing the Lolita trope, a very different thing than understanding what Lolita is actually about, is an easy way of dismissing a woman calling her out for being not just childish, but a child. Because to be a Lolita is to be a schoolgirl, a cipher, an object whose value is in its pliancy. And when a Lolita becomes inconvenient, well, then the narrative arc of a Lolita is clear. She dies, unquote. Iverson goes on to say in this same piece, quote, It is wrong to compare Apple to Lolita, but still, the insults leveled at Apple for her honesty about celebrity culture sound like those that would have been thrown at Dolores Hayes if she'd complained about being kidnapped and raped. How insufferable could one girl be? Didn't she know how lucky she was to get to travel around the country? Even more complicated, Apple was constantly compared to Lolita the image to imply a sexual knowingness and seduction all while having a very tragic, critical commonality with Dolores Hayes. Fiona Apple was raped when she was 12 years old, near her parents' apartment building in New York, an event that understandably traumatized her for long, long after, and images and ideas of which came up in her early work and still in her most recent album. Fiona was not shy about talking about this event while she was a teen performer, and still the Lolita comparisons were pushed upon her at the exact same moment in her career. 
It's no wonder she had such disdain for the commercial culture she was made to operate inside of in those early years. Unlike Dolores, Fiona was able to state what happened to her over and over and over. And while it resonated with a lot of listeners, particularly survivors of sexual trauma and teen girls, the culture at large and the commercial creeps making money off of her image just viewed this as a selling point. Fiona Apple is a fascinating case study of connecting to Dolores Hayes while being presented to us as Lolita. And as we've discussed in past episodes, every boomer band on the face of the planet that my uncles listen to have some weird ode to having sex with an underage or barely legal girl. It's just, it's all of them. Here's a short list. The Beatles with the song, I Saw Her Standing There. The Rolling Stones with Stray Cat Blues. The Police, Don't Stand So Close to Me. Uh, Kiss in the song, Christine 16. Wonder what that's about. The song, My Sharona, the list goes on. We don't have time. So Lolita references are not new to music, but both aesthetically and in the sheer volume of lyrical references, Lana Del Rey is the queen. Lana Del Rey is the stage name for singer-songwriter Lizzie Grant, who became famous in her mid-20s and references Lolita explicitly and heavily in her 2012 breakout album, Born to Die. She uses references to the book and to classic Americana imagery from the 1940s and 50s. Think femme fatale imagery, popsicle stands, beaches, American flags posed dramatically behind lyrics about pain. I mean, to be honest, I was pretty into it when it first came out. And in these images and lyrics, Lana sort of casts herself as Lolita, in spite of being well into her 20s. It's a deliberate artistic choice that she's making. But not all female pop stars are lucky enough to say that the Lolitafication of their image was quite as voluntary. On the other end of Lana, there's young artists in the music industry who are asked to grow up way too quickly in order to move product. I'm talking about the Disney and Nickelodeon pipeline that yielded stars like Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera starting as kids on the Mickey Mouse Club into increasingly sexualized commercial pop stars when they became teenagers. The same pipeline that took Miley Cyrus from Hannah Montana to straddling a wrecking ball. You know what I'm talking about. And this doesn't make the work of these artists less valuable. I'm mentioning it to reinforce that we're not out of the woods in taking child stars of any gender and monetizing and exploiting their coming of age. I'm going to give three examples of pop stars that sort of lead up to Lana Del Rey here. They're all very different and complicated and warrant longer discussion. But just to contextualize the Lolitatization effect that the music industry and the entertainment industry tends to have specifically on young girls. Put a pin in Lana. She will be back soon. One of the most iconic images that is invoked when talking about how Lolita culture has cropped up in mainstream media is a photo of Britney Spears on the cover of Rolling Stone in 1999 at age 17. You have probably seen this photo before. She is posed in a bra and panties, and she's talking on the phone while holding a Teletubbies doll. It's Poe for all my Teletubbies heads out there. The intent is very clearly to juxtapose the fact that Britney Spears is still a child with the fact that she is coming of age sexually. The cover says, Britney Spears inside the heart, mind, and bedroom of a teen dream. Inside this issue were pictures of 17-year-old Britney in lingerie in a bedroom full of porcelain dolls. 
a photo of Britney wearing skimpy shorts with the word baby in rhinestones while holding a pink bike that seems to be for someone much younger than 17. There's another photo of Britney in a tube top, jumping around in a room full of childhood participation trophies, along with a girl who appears to be maybe 10 years old. These photos, interestingly enough, are no longer included in the archived version of this article on Rolling Stones' website. When you go back to look at this interview now, all the Rolling Stone website shows you is a very wholesome headshot of a 17-year-old Britney. Nice try. In 2011, Rolling Stone reflected on this iconic cover and attempted to explain the photo shoot's theme with photographer Dave LaChapelle. Rolling Stone writes this. Spears and LaChapelle both said they knew the photo would cause a bit of commotion, but they figured it was worth it. I said to her, you don't want to be buttoned up like Debbie Gibson, LaChapelle recalls. I said, let's push it further and do this whole Lolita thing. She got it. She knew it would get people talking and excited. Spears proved, even then, that she was going to take charge of crafting her own image. One night while they were shooting, LaChapelle says Spears' manager, Larry Rudolph, walked in at 2 a.m. to find her posing in her bra and panties. Rudolph demanded to know what was going on. Brittany said, yeah, I don't feel comfortable, says the photographer. At first, I felt betrayed, but as soon as Larry walked out, Brittany said, lock the door, and unbuttoned her shirt wide open. Now, I can't say for sure how Britney Spears felt about this at the time or now, and I would never want to assume. However, this quote from Dave LaChapelle hits me as a bit of a deflection. In 1999, LaChapelle was a 25-year-old fashion photographer most famous for shooting adult female celebrities in the nude. A year after this photo, LaChapelle would take the iconic photo of a 19-year-old Paris Hilton, wearing nothing but a mesh top flipping the camera off in the middle of her grandmother's ornate living room. Also referenced in this quote is Larry Rudolph, Spears' longtime manager who has been with her since childhood. They're just not two people whose opinions on how amenable a 17-year-old girl was to a very exploitative photo shoot that I trust. Britney Spears says this later in her career to InStyle in 2013. In this business, you make a deal with the devil. Another pop star I feel very strongly about whose initial marketing and tragic details of her too short life reflect Lolita aesthetics and patterns is Aaliyah, the 90s R&B pop singer whose career trajectory intersects directly with sexual abuse as a child from the very beginning of her career. Aaliyah was discovered by former musician R. Kelly, who as of this recording has been convicted of 18 counts of kidnapping, forced labor, child sexual exploitation, child pornography production, and obstruction of justice. These abuses were the subject of a docuseries called Surviving R. Kelly, which I would recommend if you're seeking out the full horrifying context of what I'm talking about here. Aaliyah tragically died in a plane crash at only 22 years old back in 2001, but she was first introduced to R. Kelly around the age of 12 by her uncle, who at that time was Kelly's manager. Kelly became Aaliyah's mentor and wrote all the songs for and produced her first record, which was released when she was 14 years old. The album was called Age Ain't Nothing But a Number, and it was a huge hit, going platinum twice. The title track was written by R. Kelly and produced by R. Kelly and is about an underage girl who wants to date an older man. You may have heard it before, but here are some lyrics. Take my hand and come with me. Let me show you to ecstasy. Boy, be brave, don't be afraid, cause tonight we're gonna go all the way. 
Don't mean to be bold, gotta let you know, I got a thing for you and I can't let go. My age ain't nothing but a number. Robert Kelly's words sung out of Aaliyah's mouth. Around the time of this song's release, there were rumors that Kelly and Aaliyah had secretly married when she was just 15 and he was 27. It was later revealed that Kelly had illegally married her in August 1994 when she was 15, something that required false documents about her age to accomplish this as she was not old enough to legally marry without her parents' consent. Demetrius Smith, R. Kelly's former tour manager, admitted in 2019 on Surviving R. Kelly that he helped falsify these documents and that Aaliyah looked, quote, worried and scared, unquote, during the shotgun wedding. All while being marketed as the young girl enticing older men, Aaliyah was encouraged to downplay her relationship with Kelly even after they'd been illegally married. In Vibe magazine in 1994, Aaliyah says she and Kelly would, quote, go watch a movie, unquote, and go eat, and then, quote, come back and work, unquote, and that their relationship was rather close. These rumors that dogged this incredibly talented 15-year-old artist affected her professionally at the time, especially after Vibe confirmed that the wedding had happened in January 1995. Aaliyah reportedly filed to have this marriage annulled in late 1995 when she was 16 and cut off all relations with Kelly and refused to discuss the rumors publicly all the way up until her death. Her partner at the time of her death, Damon Dash, told the magazine Hip Hop Motivation in 2019 that Aaliyah rarely spoke of R. Kelly in her private life, only referring to him as a, quote, bad man, unquote. Aaliyah went on to make two other albums, One in a Million and Aaliyah, before her death, and they're so good, and her place in music history is deservedly secured, in spite of how soon we lost her back in August 2001. And this is, of course, a much more complicated topic and story that I'm going to be linking resources to in the description, as Kelly's abuse of girls, specifically black girls, ranges far beyond Aaliyah. This also connects to the fact that we, as a culture, do not prioritize protecting black and brown girls as we need to. As we've discussed on the show before, black, brown, and indigenous girls and women are far more likely to be sexually assaulted than white girls and women, far less likely to be covered in the media, and more likely to be over-sexualized in popular media. The point I want to make here is that Aaliyah's treatment by R. Kelly was happening more or less in public. Everyone knew that age ain't nothing but a number weren't Aaliyah's words, they were Robert Kelly's, and so many knowing adults around her did nothing to stop it. And in the 90s, this was not disqualifying from getting you onto the music charts. And in fact, this was used as a marketing point to initially launch Aaliyah's career. There are accounts called Aaliyah.Lolita2001 to this day. Dolores always comes into the conversation when it comes to romanticizing the relationship between an underage girl and an adult man. What's deeply tragic on top of everything is that Aaliyah isn't here to tell us what she feels now. She never got that chance. And resources are included uh, to learn more about other survivors of Kelly and how to support them in the description of this episode. The third pop star I want to talk about that gets us even closer timeline-wise to where Lana Del Rey comes into prominence is Katy Perry, another contemporary pop star who has referenced Nabokov's work explicitly starting very early in her career. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. 
Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Katy Perry, born Catherine Hudson, was born into a family of Pentecostal pastors and began her career in gospel music as a teenager. She released her first gospel album at 16, then changed her name when signing with Def Jam Records in 2004. This pivoted her from gospel to pop music hard. By 2007, she was producing hits like I Kissed a Girl and Hot and Cold for her 2008 record called One of the Boys. On the cover of this album, Katy Perry is laying in a suburban backyard garden in a crop top and shorts, biting on a pair of, wait for it, dark glasses. The cover of this album is an explicit reference to Lolita. And if that's not enough of a reference for you, there's a line from the title track of One of the Boys that goes like this. 
So over the summer, something changed. I started reading Seventeen and shaving my legs. And I studied Lolita religiously. And I walked right into school and caught you staring at me. So, you know, in context, I don't really understand these lyrics. Katy Perry was 24 when this album was released, but the song One of the Boys is written about the time when she was a teenager and very likely did not have a nuanced understanding of Lolita by Nabokov. But then on the press tour for this album, she says this about her history with Lolita. And for some reason I have this obsession with Lolita and I think it's because she's both innocent and knows she's a little bit of a sex kitten as well and she walks that line. Um, And, uh, you know, I think it's boring if you're too goody two-shoes and you come out looking like a slut if you're a a bad girl all the time. (laughs) So you gotta walk that line. I genuinely don't want to pass too much judgment on this. We are all growing, I hope, and this was 2008. But yeah, this perspective was certainly reflected in the way that Perry perpetuated the Lolita aesthetic. In this case, I mean an adult woman presenting as a consenting, inviting, underage girl. In the case of Britney Spears and Aaliyah, the Lolita aesthetic means an underage girl styled to look like a consenting adult. It's complicated, but the aesthetic looks very similar. We see themes of this also in Perry's album Teenage Dream, released when she was 25. So here we are, back at Lana Del Rey. And it would take years and years to give you the full context on what gets us to her work, but I hope the three examples I've chosen have helped. Katy Perry and Lana Del Rey make very different sounding music, but unlike Britney Spears and Aaliyah, they are intentionally referencing Lolita in their work in music they themselves are writing. Britney Spears co-writes some of her later work, but all of her early hits are written by adult men, and as we know, R. Kelly wrote Aaliyah's entire first album. Katy Perry and Lana Del Rey have the benefit of adulthood and more active collaboration in their work. And especially now that I've been knee-deep in Tumblr for several weeks and feel like I have a pretty clear idea that her work in romanticizing Lolita is still to this day very impactful and she's never really addressed it. Look, I don't even think this is like a hot take. I think that in these online communities, especially, Lana has done net harm with her messaging. Lana Del Rey released this music when she was my age, when she was like in her late 20s. So it's inconceivable to me, even with the additional pressures of the music industry, that she was not aware what she was doing or who her audience was. And Lana Del Rey references Lolita explicitly, both visually and in lyrics, very frequently. When discussing Born to Die, she referred to her music as, quote, Lolita lost in the hood, unquote. And to complicate things further, she's been pretty historically resistant to identifying as a feminist in the traditional sense, saying in 2014 that her, quote, idea of a true feminist is a woman who feels free enough to do whatever she wants, unquote. As recently as the past year, she's been publicly frustrated at the suggestion that her lyrics and aesthetics have glamorized abuse. The Lolita discussion and the high concentration of Lolita references is a part of why she's faced these criticisms over the years. There are many Lana songs that use a single line or reference to the book, but I'm just going to use the most major examples here to save time. From her 2010 self-titled album, the song Put Me in a Movie is about a young girl who desperately wants to become an actress, featuring the line, come on, you know you like little girls. And then from her breakout album, 2012's Born to Die, here are the references. 
The song Diet Mountain Dew is a song about forbidden and uncertain love featuring this lyrical clincher. Baby put on heart-shaped sunglasses cause we gonna take a ride. I'm not gonna listen to what the past says. I've been waiting up all night. Then there's Off to the Races, a song that is entirely about Lolita and Humbert Humbert. Lyrics read, My old man is a bad man, but I can't deny the way he holds my hand. And he grabs me, he has me by my heart. Again, implying that Dolores is deeply infatuated and in love with Humbert. When a close read of the book makes it pretty clear that Dolores Hayes' crush on Humbert ends when the abuse begins and never returns. In a lot of the music videos on Born to Die, the 1997 movie adaptation on Lolita is visually referenced. And then in Off to the Races, we've got this chorus. Light of my life, fire of my loins, be a good baby, do what I want. Light of my life, fire of my loins, give me them gold coins, give me them coins. Now the meaning from the book that's lost in that chorus is pretty obvious. The gold coins that Lana is referencing is Dolores Hayes hiding her allowance from Humbert Humbert in Nabokov's book so that she can afford to escape his abuse. Not so she can exert this maximalist capitalism control over him like Lana describes. Dolores Hayes is hiding quarters and dollars for survival. She continues. My old man is a thief and I'm gonna stay and pray with him till the end. But I trust in the decision of the Lord to watch over us, take him when he may, if he may. I'm not afraid to say that I'd die without him. Who else is gonna put up with me this way? Again, these lyrics stray very far from what the book is talking about. Dolores did save her money up and fled Humbert Humbert, tragically with someone who ended up being another child sex abuser. The narrative being presented in the song Off to the Races is that Dolores would die without Humbert, and that's completely false advertising. The Dolores Hayes of the book seemed to feel the exact opposite. Off to the Races ends with the line, you are my one true love, repeated three times. Then we're still going. On the deluxe edition of Lana Del Rey's Born to Die, there is a bonus track that is literally named Lolita with the chorus. Hey Lolita, hey, hey Lolita, hey, I know what the boys want, I'm not gonna play. Hey Lolita, hey, hey Lolita, hey, whistle all you want, but I'm not gonna say. And a number of vague references to the imagery of the movies and the book like this. No more skipping rope, skipping heartbeats with the boys downtown, just you and me feeling the heat even when the sun goes down. Lana likes Lolita. I don't know if she likes Dolores. There are other songs with references, but they're mainly from leaked music that were stolen or otherwise hacked. And I'm not a fan of holding someone accountable for art that they didn't choose to release. But everything I just told you is on the record monetized releases by Lana Del Rey about Lolita. YouTube is overflowing with fan edits of the 1997 Lolita movie edited with these songs in the background. And Lana herself promoted the song Lolita with an image of her with blonde pigtails with pink ribbons in her hair, biting her thumbnail and looking seductively at the camera. She is 24 or 25 in this picture. Because innocence is sexier than you think. 
Lana Del Rey has been criticized extensively, most recently for comments that are extremely tone deaf if you're being generous, and what many perceive to be full-on anti-Black comments as it pertains to how sexuality is presented in pop versus how she presents. She's also been put on blast for wearing a mesh face mask in the middle of a global pandemic. The list goes on. But this discussion around Lolita culture and her music and music videos, while having her music marketed to a primarily young audience, was one of her earliest major controversies. This, among other lyrics and themes in her music, were often categorized as glamorizing abuse, something that Lana continues to push back on to this day. I'm going to share the controversial comment that she made in 2020 that I think very rightfully got her a lot of blowback because it kind of bundles all of the controversies I just described into one problematic Lana Del Rey quote. It says this. Question for the culture. Now that Doja Cat and Cardi B, Ariana, Camilla, Kalani, Nicki Minaj and Beyonce have had number ones with songs about being sexy, wearing no clothes, fucking, cheating, etc. Can I please go back to singing about being embodied, feeling beautiful by being in love, even if the relationship is not perfect or dancing for money or whatever I want, without being crucified or saying I'm glamorizing abuse? So first and most importantly, the artists that Lana lists are majority black and brown women who already face aggressive racist stereotyping in culture as being overly sexual, and Lana tearing them down in favor of bringing up an old gripe she has about glamorizing abuse is stunningly tone deaf to say the least. Then there's Lana's thoughts on feminism, taken from this Fader interview in 2014. For me, the issue of feminism is just not an interesting concept. I'm more interested, you know, in SpaceX and Tesla and what's going to happen with our intergalactic possibilities. Whenever people bring up feminism, I'm like, God, I'm just not really that interested. Wake up, feminist sheeple. We need to be talking about SpaceX and Tesla. Uh, Lana expands on her thoughts on feminism in the 2020 comments I was referencing earlier, saying she's, quote, not not a feminist, unquote, but wishes that feminism would make space for women who look like her, as if feminism hasn't served white women from the jump. She does argue that it should not be taboo to sing about abusive dynamics in a relationship, and as it pertains to her personal life, sing about whatever you want, Lana. Again, I've listened to her music when navigating shitty relationships myself, but as it pertains to Lolita, she's not singing about her own experience. She's using a famous text about abuse and turning it into something romantic in lyrics and in visuals. Ultimately, I am not here to litigate whether Lana Del Rey is good for feminism or bad for feminism. That is one of the most tired, pieces of discourse in the history of the internet, and I have no wish to rehash it here. What I'm here to talk about is what Lana Del Rey has done for the Lolita or Nymphette aesthetic, and whether the heavy references she makes to the book and to Dolores are transformative or effective in really any way. 
And then this discussion about glamorizing abuse has a lot to do with how Lana frames Lolita in her music, both lyrically and visually, and that she brought about a pretty significant resurgence of this 1997 Adrian Lyne movie aesthetic, except at the time she was a 27-year-old woman cosplaying as a 12-year-old. And given that Del Rey would have been 12 at the time the Adrian Lyne movie was released in 97, I mean, it's not unlikely that it really affected her. She's mentioned many times in interviews that her life as a teenager involved growing up way too fast, drinking, and spending time with older men. Here's a bit of an interview she did with German newspaper Die Zeit in 2013. Die Zeit asks, How do you get along with feminists? A lot of people had a problem with your Lolita look in the video for Ride. Del Rey responds, I don't play the role of a Lolita. I just like the text. Lots of pop stars play with the Lolita thing. Barely wear clothes. It's different with me. I wish I knew how to explain it. It's not about being a Lolita. It's more about an attitude as if one was choosing polygamy, free love, or whatever. It's my choice. It's not about the woman's movement for me, and my songs aren't a comment on today's pop music either. Desite asks, more of a mix of diary and personal confession? Delray replies, Let's take the song Born to Die. The autobiographical verse is about not giving up on being a good person. I was with a man back then who just let himself float. We both made a decision together to lead a drug-free life, but then he more or less ran away, and everything I could do for him was pray. In the chorus, it all opens up into a passionate fantasy. Come and take a walk on the wild side. Let me kiss you hard in the pouring rain. Ultimately, it's an escape into romanticism. With this in mind, no matter what you feel about it, you can't assume that all of her music is about Dolores Hayes. A lot of it, including some of the Lolita imagery, seems to be pulled from Lana Del Rey or Lizzie Grant's real-life experiences. And it's not up to us to tell someone how to properly interpret their own life. But the times she is explicitly addressing the text, it's a pretty heavy rewrite of Dolores' story that implies the same kind of deviousness, cunning, and sexual strategicness that many of the adaptations falsely do. Ultimately, I just don't think that Lana Del Rey is really bringing anything new to the table, unfortunately. It is mostly a reselling of old, harmful Lolita aesthetics. I'm not a music critic, but in terms of the messaging in this era of her work, I honestly don't see anything visually or lyrically from Lana that demonstrates a close reading of Nabokov's book. And for a pop culture figure who references Lolita more heavily than anyone else in the space, this is far from ideal. She, Lizzie Grant, has very likely read the book, but in terms of how her Lana as Lolita is styled, in terms of how the Humbert figure in these songs is painted as a tragic, romantic, pathetic man, and Lana's Lolita is sexually forward, very knowing, seductive, conniving at times, it strikes me as being far more influenced by the 1997 movie. There's really no influence here that couldn't be gotten from watching the movie for free on YouTube a couple times and watching the DVD extras. And going back to those visuals, Lana in heart-shaped glasses and all, 
this feeds more into the cultural image we have of Lolita than it does really challenge or change it. And to be fair, Lana's work does not imply a happy ending coming for her Lolita, but the image is a 20-something in pigtails and heart-shaped sunglasses, not a 12-year-old, not a 14-year-old. And of course, that's an image that's much easier to consume. Innocence is sexier than you think. Her imagery doesn't read that different than a bad book cover or an icky perfume ad, all musicality aside. It plays right into our cultural tendency to assume Dolores Hayes is much older than she actually is. So that's Lana. Her Lolita aesthetics are so notable because their release into the 2010s, 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 what are we going to call that? Someone decide. Her release of Lolita aesthetics in the 2010s collide with the popularity of Tumblr, where Lolita and Nymphette blogs explode. And these blogs heavily feature pictures, words, and images from Lana's music. So to talk about this and to contextualize the effect that Lana Del Rey had on girls who had recently picked up the book Lolita, I talked to video essayist and writer Ms. Lola. She's made a number of video essays and reviews of Lolita's derivative works, as well as one about problematic favorites and Lana Del Rey. I'm linking her work below. It's truly great. We caught up around the holidays to talk about Lana's effect on her life and on Lolita and Nymphette culture. I was a huge fan of a series of unfortunate events. So that's when I first heard about it. And then a couple years later, I got into Lana Del Rey and I was, and I found the old notebook where I had written down his book recommendations. So I was like, it's a sign. I actually um, changed my name. Not a lot of people know this. I like basically only people in my personal life, um, but, and you're free to include this, of course. Um, but I, like I, when I moved away from my hometown, it was a pretty bad situation. Um, and I decided it would be positive. Like, you know, sometimes when you, when you get out of a bad situation, you kind of do want to metamorphosize, um, to take a butterfly metaphor. So, um, I thought it would be kind of symbolically powerful to take like the name of a survivor, um, and to carry her name as an adult woman. So I wanted to ask you as well, um, were you in, ever involved in Lolita Tumblr culture? Uh, was was that ever like a, a space that you browsed? There's There's been a lot of people I talked to when I was researching for the initial video mm-hmm. um, who discovered the book through that. And there were a lot of, you know, like put out the call at the time it was just on Facebook because mm-hmm. I wasn't on. This is the crazy thing is I wasn't really on social media until I started d- doing my YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. And I kind of regret it because um, I think I, you know, it's kind of like where it's at, <laughs> to mm-hmm. be honest. Yeah, absolutely. And realize that these conversations were being had. I want to talk with you about Lana Del Rey, um, because I know you have made a really wonderful video discussing this in depth um, about problematic faves, Lana Del Rey being one of yours. But um, yeah, I want to talk about your experience in that fandom and how it kind of connects to Lolita. It's interesting because, again, her music was not the introduction for me, um, Mm -hmm. but it was definitely encouragement. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, That said, um, it's hard because I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's my experience that there was any sort of parasocial grooming. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm talking about this in a future episode about how I think the whole parasocial relationship thing passed right over me because mm-hmm. I wasn't um, so on social media, but it's a very big part of a lot of people's lives. And I think that 
you know, it's going to become a bigger discussion, this whole element of parasocial grooming, because I've definitely now talked to people who are like, listen, if I hadn't gotten into her music, I wouldn't have like started romanticizing all of that. We'll be talking with Dolores more later in the series about her experience commenting on Lolita on YouTube, and make sure to check out her video essays, particularly the video We Need to Talk About Lolita on her YouTube channel. So Lana Del Rey and the online nymphette aesthetic exist alongside each other and have for a long time now. Again, I'm not here to tell you how to feel about Lana Del Rey, but I take issue with her perspective on whether she's perpetuating the misconceptions around who Dolores Hayes is. Part of the reason we're having this discussion at all is because her music is very popular and I like a lot of it. I mean, it's catchy as hell. The last album was good. The messaging is very much up for criticism. The problem here is that the most influential steward of the Lolita aesthetic in modern pop culture is pushing the same old false read of the text. I've heard many times in her defense that Lana is making an almost satirical comment on Lolita, but per her interviews, that's not the case. I've also heard the defense that she is presenting Dolores as someone reclaiming their power, this kind of pseudo-feminist message, but per her interviews, that's not the case. What we're left with is what's in the work. And none of these galaxy brain interpretations of Lana's early work seem to factor into how much of her fan base receives her. The one contemporary cultural figure that is prominently figured on nymphet blogs and forums to this day is her. So that's a look at a smattering of the more influential perpetuations of Lolita imagery in pop culture. And the only visual influence that persists stronger in the history of Lolita, stronger even than heart-shaped sunglasses and the occasional rogue Lana Del Rey lyric, is the 1997 Adrian Lyne movie adaptation. So we'd better take a look at that, right? Next time on Lolita Podcast. Lolita Podcast is an iHeartRadio production. It is written and hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, produced by Sophie Lichterman, Beth Ann Macaluso, Miles Gray, and Jack O'Brien. It is edited by the wonderful Isaac Taylor. Music is from Zoe Blade. Theme music is from Brad Dickert. And my guest voices this week are Robert Evans, Caitlin Durante, Melissa Lozada Oliva, Maggie Mae Fish, and Daniel Goodman. See you next week. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.